0: Before I start, I feel that I need to defend myself that loving cats is not my flaw. I feel like it's one of my best qualities as a person. So thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, friends, I am so excited to be here with you all this evening. If I haven't met you before, like Mark and Michael said, my name is Tatiana, and I am one of the worship leaders on staff here at Menlo, and I am beyond honored and excited to be here with you all and to be a part of this series with you all called What If?, and if you weren't here last week, we started this new series together that we'll be in together for the next couple of weeks. And really the heart behind this is that we all ask ourselves various what-if questions throughout our life. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some what-if questions that if we really consider them and apply them to our lives, can change the way that we live our lives. And tonight, we're going to be unpacking the question together, what if freedom became a reality? Now, my favorite TV show of all time is The Office. Yes. (laughs) I think I've watched The Office through all the way at least 10 times, and now I have become fluent in speaking Office quotes. And if The Office isn't your favorite show, you're entitled to your own opinion. Your opinion is wrong, but you're entitled (laughs) to it. And one of the things about The Office is when you watch it, you can experience something that I like to call secondhand embarrassment. When you watch all the cringy, awkward, embarrassing things that Michael Scott does and says, you can feel that embarrassment for him so intensely that you're actually feeling it for yourself, and it's hard to watch. Yeah. (laughs) When I think of those episodes that have that most intense level of cringe factor and secondhand embarrassment, first I think of Dinner Party, and I think we have a picture of that. Yeah, so Dinner Party is an episode where Michael and his psycho girlfriend, Jan, pictured there, invite some people from the office over for the world's most uncomfortable dinner party. And this dinner party ends with Jan taking a trophy that Michael awarded himself and throwing it at his plasma screen TV, his $200 plasma screen TV, and breaking it. And then the cops get called, and it's it's just messy. But there's one other episode that when... I watch it. I actually, I just can't watch it because that cringe level and secondhand embarrassment is just too intense for me and I feel too uncomfortable. And that episode is Scott's Tots. Yeah, some of you know, some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now. You're reliving that. And in this episode, Michael is caught in a 10 year lie. Ten years ago, he promised a class of third graders that he would pay their college tuition if they graduated high school because he was a wealthy businessman, which was not true. So now, in this episode, the class is days away from graduating, and Michael has to go to their school and come clean about this lie. And he walks into the school, and they just want to honor him and thank him for his generosity. There's a room called the Michael Gary Scott Reading Room that they have dedicated to him. He walks into this classroom, and they're all wearing those shirts that say Scott's Tots, which are what they call themselves and they get up in front of him, they perform this choreographed dancer's teen and song that they've written for him, which if you know it, it goes, hey, Mr. Scott, what you gonna do? What you gonna do? Make our dreams come true, which was not not true at all. (laughs) (laughs) So after all of that, Michael has to get up in front of them, and he has to come clean about this lie, and the cringiest part of the episode is when he gets up in front of them, and he says, hey, I am not gonna be able to pay your tuition today. But online classes are an option. And to take online classes, everyone needs a laptop, which is rendered useless without batteries. And then he begins to provide them laptop batteries and, you know, instead of college tuition as if that would somehow ease the pain of this experience for them. Now, the reason that we all cringe when we watch Michael Scott on The Office because we all have some moment in our life where we have felt like Michael. Maybe we didn't lie to a classroom of underprivileged kids, but we have all felt caught in a lie, felt exposed and felt embarrassed. Now, I want to try to invite you to try to think back to a time where you got caught. Maybe doing something you weren't supposed to. Maybe you were speeding or gossiping about someone or or you were caught in a lie. Now, hopefully you weren't telling a class of third graders you could pay their college tuition, but try to think back to that moment. Try to remember that very feeling where you knew you couldn't talk your way out of it. You couldn't lie your way out of it. You were simply caught. And tonight, we're gonna be looking at the story of a woman who was caught in a very serious offense. And like you can feel that sense of secondhand embarrassment watching Michael Scott in the office, hearing the story of this woman and the intense humiliation and shame that she went through can resonate with us in a much deeper way in a way where we can all feel that sense of second-hand embarrassment because the reality is we can all, in some way, relate to the shame that she experienced and felt that day. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was dragged by force into a public gathering, humiliated by what she had done, with no one to protect her. She was sentenced to death by self-righteous leaders and thrown down at the feet of Jesus. And we see in this story that there are two clear voices. There's the voices of condemnation, of criticism, and humiliation. And then, on the other hand, there is the voice of Christ that confronts our sin and shame with love and offers a better way for us to live. Because God is nothing like our accusers. And I believe tonight that freedom can become a reality for us when we embrace the truth that even though many accusations can be brought against us, in Christ's grace and his kindness, he doesn't condemn us, but he sets us free to leave our life of sin. Now, the story picks up. This is John 8, chapter, or John eight verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having sent her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Now let's pause here for a moment. There is someone missing here in this scenario. The rules for capital cases like adultery in this time were extremely strict, and it says that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. For the Pharisees to actually have a case against this woman, the act had to be observed by multiple witnesses, who each had perfect testimonies agreeing to every last detail. They also had to see the actual sexual act take place. They couldn't simply see the couple exiting a room together or sleeping on the same bed and somehow infer what happened. These conditions were so strict that they could only be met on extremely rare occasions, and when they were met, there was no need for there to be a public trial. A theologian named James Boyce said about this that under these conditions, the obtaining of evidence in adultery would be almost impossible were the situation not a setup. So I'll ask again who is the person missing in this scenario? The man is missing to state that obviously there was another person involved in this very act that they caught her in, but the Pharisees chose not to bring him as well. Somehow he was able to escape, and somehow the Pharisees allowed him to escape. And we obviously don't know this to be a fact, but this sure looks like it's some kind of setup, and this woman was specifically chosen to set Jesus up. The religious leaders possibly had something against her. They brought her out publicly even though there was no need for a public trial. They intentionally chose the most humiliating circumstances possible for this woman, holding her against her will. And I personally believe they also brought her out naked as well because the text says that she was caught in the act. And I cannot imagine a scenario where the Pharisees would allow her the time or the dignity to get dressed. Can you? The word caught is also in the perfect tense, which is indicating that this woman was continuing in a lifestyle of adultery. And this was something that was widely known about her. She had a reputation. She had a habitual lifestyle of sexual sin, and it was what she was known for in her community. Now, have you you ever felt captive to your reputation? Have you ever felt captive to what someone else thinks of you? That no matter what you do, your images are stained in their perspective. And you can't seem to earn their trust or respect no matter what you do. Now the story continues in verse 6, saying, They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Let's hear that last line again. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. And here we see that the heart of God is not like the heart of our accusers. That God is nothing like our accusers. Because while this woman stood guilty before Jesus and her peers, the Son of God chose mercy. The sinless, perfect, Holy Son of God, the only one who had any right to pick up a stone and throw it at her, chose mercy. He chose to offer her freedom instead. And friends, tonight we can learn something about the freedom that God wants for us through the story of this woman. The heart of God for us is that we would be free from shame and condemnation. That we would be free from our life of sin and therefore set free into a new reputation. So first we see that Jesus' desire for us is that we would be free from shame and condemnation. As the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus, they are awaiting his response to their question, what then do you say? And that question is what this text is really pointing to. Because the religious leaders were asking for and expecting her condemnation. They had already gone to great lengths to prove her guilty sentence, and there was no way this woman could defend herself or talk her way out of it. She was guilty. But what we learn about what God is like here is that he is not like our accusers. Whatever our accusers say about us, whatever we say about ourselves, those words and thoughts hold no authority because it all comes back to that question, what then does he say? And sometimes I think we can't hear the sound of God's voice loudly proclaiming grace and mercy over us because we have settled for a life, lived with a pair of headphones on, replaying a tape of accusations of ourselves and of other people. And why do we do that? What is keeping us from receiving this grace of God that he freely gives us, that he freely gives us? And I think tonight that many of us in this room can think back to a moment in our lives where we have felt great shame, guilt. Maybe you're still wrestling with regret and you wonder that about God. You wonder what then does he say? And so many of us have this view of God that he is waiting to condemn us. That he's eager to punish us. That he's angry with us like we are angry at ourselves. But God is nothing like your accusers. And God is nothing like you when you accuse yourself. We see here the character of God is that he didn't react with anger or outrage at this woman or at the detestable people that brought her to him. Instead, he paused. He paused and he stooped down to write in the ground. And the body language throughout this story is so significant, but Jesus getting down in the dirt with this woman, with this woman, arguably shows us the most about what kind of God he is. Jesus stooping down right in the ground indicated his meekness, his humility, his gentleness, and his kindness towards this woman and towards each one of us. He didn't tower above her and declare her sentence. He did what he could with his body language to identify with, care for, and ease her embarrassment. While everyone else stood around her, treating her as less than human, he got down to her level. And then he began riding in the dirt, not even acknowledging the accusations that were brought against her. And isn't that itself wild? He didn't even acknowledge the accusations. And after he rode in the ground, he raised himself up to speak to her accusers. And he said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And as they walked away, one by one, leaving their stones behind, Jesus waited until he was alone with this woman. And then he spoke directly to her. Treating her with kindness and dignity, this is the first time in the passage that someone spoke to her. The rest of the time, she is sitting there silent while everyone else around her is talking about her, but Jesus talks to her. With her accusers gone, there was no one left to condemn her, and Jesus himself, the only one who had any right to judge or condemn her, did not. She was guilty, and there was no denying that. But her guilt was not greater than the mercy of God and your guilt. Your regret, your shame is not greater than the mercy that Christ has to offer you right now in this moment. And Jesus cared not only that this woman would be free from the condemnation and accusations of her accusers, but he also didn't condone her behavior. Instead, he gave her the freedom to live a new life completely different from the one that she was currently living, and that was love. That was grace. That was his mercy. Not that he simply showed pity on her and spared her life, but that he desired that she would be free from the life that she was living. Now Jesus' heart for us, his heart for us, is that we would be free from our sin. He says to her, go and sin no more. And her freedom is found in the last three words of that sentence. Sin no more. And those words, sin no more, can actually be translated, leave your life of sin. The reality is this woman was not free living the life that she was living. She was captive not only to her habitual sin of adultery, but also to the reputation that she had in her community. She may have even felt that there was no point in her trying to change who she was when everyone around her had already made up some idea in their mind of who she was and what kind of woman she was. Now, I have been pretty open here at Sanctuary that a part of my story is that I was sexually assaulted when I was 13. And the way that this happened was actually very public, so the majority of my peers knew and heard about what had happened. But what they didn't know was that it was not consensual. They didn't know that I had said no multiple times. They didn't know that I fought him off repeatedly until I was threatened, and I did everything that I could do. But when everyone around me was saying one thing about who I was and what I had done, and I had gained a reputation around my peers as being a certain kind of girl, I didn't see much of a point in fighting that reputation. I figured, if this is who everyone else says that I am, this must be who I am. And believing that for me was actually easier than accepting the fact that I had been assaulted. But about a year and a half after this happened, I found Jesus. And in Him, I found a fresh start. And my reputation around my peers radically began to change, and who I was was not recognizable to the person that I had become. But I was still ignoring the truth about this painful part of my story and I was refusing to deal with it because it was easier for me to write it off as just another part of my sexual sin that God had already forgiven, so there was no need for me to think about it or dwell on it. But I felt a very different kind of shame when I remembered this event. And one of the only people that I had ever opened up to about the truth about that situation and what had happened and had said to me, Tatiana, that sounds a lot like rape. And those words kept echoing in my mind, and I did not want it to be True that I started seriously considering whether or not this could be true, and when I did, I started having intense nightmares every single night. It got to the point where I was just reliving the event in different ways, and I was afraid to go to sleep every single night. And during this time, there was a Sunday that I was singing at my church, and there was a man who was visiting from out of town. And he came up to me after service and said that he had a word of knowledge for me. Now, we don't talk about words of knowledge too often at Presbyterian churches. And what it basically means is that the Holy Spirit will give someone supernatural insight and knowledge into a situation, something that they couldn't have possibly known before. And that person will share that insight as God leads them. And this man said to me, and I wish that I wrote it down verbatim, but in a nutshell, this is what he said. He said, something happened to you when you were younger, and your innocence was taken from you. And everyone around you thought it was your fault and blamed you for it. And God wants you to know that he doesn't blame you. He wants to restore you. And soon you're going to fall asleep reading your Bible. And this is God telling you that he wants you to find comfort and rest in him. Now in this moment, I was absolutely stunned because the detail in what he said could have only possibly come from someone who knew the event, who knew what happened. And what he said even addressed the nightmares that I was currently suffering. And about a month after that, I did fall asleep reading my Bible. And I knew that that was God telling me that that word was true and confirming that for me. And through this person that God sent me, I knew that God saw me there in the dirt, condemning myself and holding on to shame. And he lifted me up and he told me he did not condemn me but he wanted to set me free from the shame that I had been holding on to. And some of us tonight, like I was, are still sitting in the dirt, still condemning ourselves, still holding on to shame when Christ has already sent our accusers away. They're gone. And you need to hear those words today. I do not condemn you. And like the woman in this story would still have people around her who looked down on her, who judged her and condemned her in their heart, and she would wrestle to believe that she could really be forgiven, that she could really change. Jesus left her with a word of hope to speak against her shame. I do not condemn you. And tonight, Jesus is leaving us with that word of hope to speak against our shame. And friends, we we are not our past. We are not identified by the things that we have done or the things that have been done to us. The parts of our story that we are ashamed of. These things may have left their mark on us, but they do not define us. And Christ offers each of us a fresh start because as the religious leaders had no stones left to throw at this woman, no way to accuse her and to accuse Jesus as they had planned, they made a cross, they made a cross. And that is where Jesus ultimately took upon our condemnation. He took upon our reputation, our sin, our shame, our regrets, our past. And he nailed it to the cross so that we could walk free instead. And he gives us each the freedom to start over, to have a fresh start. Christ took on that cross that that woman deserved and that you and I deserve to not only set us free from sin, but to give us an assurance that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Now, we are not bound to our reputation or our past or what other people believe about us or what we believe about ourselves. Tonight, we can embrace our identity as sons and daughters covered in mercy. And as we close, I want us all to consider this tonight. What would your life look like if you really believed this? If you really believe that God is nothing like your accusers? How might this change how you view yourself? How you view the people around you? What would sanctuary look like if we became a place filled with people who believed in this radical forgiveness and mercy and grace and freedom that God wants for each one of us? Now, what if tonight, what if tonight we began to share more openly with one another about our broken past, about our sin, about our shame, about our struggles, and we all just threw ourselves at the feet of Jesus? Now, maybe we can start writing in the sand for each other like Jesus did for us. Let's pray. God, you are nothing like our accusers. And there is freedom in just believing that, and just letting that sink from head knowledge to heart knowledge, and believing that you have shown us mercy, that you have shown us grace, that you have sent our accusers away, that if we are still sitting in the dirt, you want to lift us up. You want to speak those words over us that you do not condemn us. And God, thank you that. Thank you that you took on the cross for us. God, I pray for any, any shame that is in this room, anyone in this room who is wrestling to believe that they could really be forgiven, that they could really have a fresh start in you. God, I pray that you would set them free from that tonight. Set them free tonight. God, I pray that they wouldn't be able to stop hearing your words, your words echoing in their mind. I do not condemn you. I do not condemn you. Tonight, he does not condemn you. God, we believe this. We believe this and we receive it. God, I pray that you would change us from the inside out because we believe this. Jesus, we we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.